Welcome to Living Downstream, the environmental justice podcast. I'm your host, Steve Mencher, and today we conclude our second full season. Here's a sobering thought. But this was the headline in Time magazine, and this is where we are right now, right? The top 1% of Americans have taken 50 trillion from the bottom 90%. And so we are in a situation where the top trillionaires and billionaires are able to make money out of the suffering, have always done so, but it's never been more apparent than today. The full headline from September 2020 quoted above was a little scarier and more provocative because it added an even more worrying phrase. The top 1% of Americans have taken $50 trillion from the bottom 90%, and that has made the U.S. less secure. Now, to be clear, this was an opinion piece for Time magazine written by two authors, one of whom is a union leader, The other thing to note is the timeline of this ongoing economic catastrophe, which sprawls over more than four decades. It's not just a pandemic phenomenon or a Trump-era phenomenon, but there's no way this is good news for those of us not in the billionaire class, and this inequity leads directly to the core of our Living Downstream podcast project. because race is the most significant predictor of of where people are actually going to, where the contamination is in the United States. If you're a black indigenous, a person of color, you're three times more likely to be living near a waste dump in the United States, right? You are much less likely to receive the aid you need. You are much less likely um, to have funding be diverted to your requirements, whether it's, it's cleanup, whether it's protection of environmental issues. Now, why is that? You're listening, by the way, to Dakila Chungyalpa. She's the director of the LOCA Initiative at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. More about that later. We're listening to her presentation on environmental justice this summer, convened by the Upaya Zen Center in New Mexico. For this final Living Downstream episode of the season, we're dropping in on three recent webinars— one on social and environmental justice at Upaya, another knitting together poetry and a powerful environmental film that was put on by the Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Program. But first, we'll drop in on an event cheekily called Toxics or a Drag and build as a panel discussion on toxic beauty products in the queer community. That was hosted by one of the most important grassroots environmental groups in the country, We Act for Environmental Justice, from New York City. Before we start, for an update on what's happening right now, the last week of October 2021, I called White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council member Dr. Robert Bullard. He's often called the father of environmental justice in this country, I asked whether action on environmental and climate justice had become a priority in the months since President Biden's inauguration. I think one of the first things that uh, really was important is that he signed a, a few executive orders, uh, one dealing with climate and environmental justice, and he appointed the, uh, a 26-member 
White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council that really got to work on issues around uh, environment, climate, health, and other issues. And one major component of that committee was to look at the administration's uh, Justice 40 initiative, uh, which talks about as we move to a green, clean energy economy to direct 40% of those investments to uh, disadvantaged communities, environmental justice communities that historically have been left behind. That's significant. Joining Dr. Bullard on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council is Catherine Flowers, who we heard from earlier in the Living Downstream season. She's vice chair. And we'll hear later this episode from two other members. Peggy Shepard of We Act for Environmental Justice is co-chair, and Maria Lopez Nunez of the Ironbound Community Corporation in Newark is a member. I asked Dr. Bullard if the council's advice is being heeded. In terms of our recommendations, the final report went into Council on Environmental Quality. There are some strong recommendations. And I think the, the other part where members of that body have also been working on the ground uh, with community uh, organizations and other um, individuals to assist in getting the right kinds of people appointed uh, to those um, departments. Those two things combined, I think, can make a big difference. It does matter who's sitting in the secretary of this and that, and whether it's EPA or DOT or at HUD, interior, uh, transportation. So I think those are the things that we have uh, made um, inroads. And I think now it's time for Congress to deliver on the funding so that those departments can actually push out that money those fundings to the right places, historically, that have been left behind or ignored. All right. Now, that's that's perfectly leads me into my next question, because this week will mark a test of whether the president can deliver uh, on some of his climate justice and environmental justice initiatives. So as these infrastructure bills, as, as the social bill gets through Congress this week, are you feeling like enough of what you want is going to be in that legislation? The kinds of issues that we want to address, whether it's health or housing, issues of more than just roads, bridges, dams, and highways, but also that safety net, dealing with that soft infrastructure, schools, healthcare, and all of those things that we know will make us healthy. It's been pared back uh, by a lot. And this is an opportunity to invest uh, in our future. And it's unfortunate that there are individuals that may not see those investments as with the urgency that that's needed. Climate change is real, is with us right now, and is getting worse. And so we need to invest in hard infrastructure as well as soft infrastructure to ensure that our communities are resilient, that can withstand these storms and heat waves, these wildfires and, and other kinds of, uh, of impacts of climate. And I think it's important that we make sure that the resources as they do get passed, and I do believe that they will be, you know, the two bills will be, uh, will be signed uh, by the president. But again, we have to ensure that they, we do the right kinds of tracking to ensure that monies follow need, as opposed to having the money somehow get caught up in politics and end up basically going to places that have the most people, who have money, and who have the most political clout. That's 
the whole system. We don't want that happening, and we will fight to ensure that that does not happen. And that's the core of Justice 40, as I understand it, is to make sure that at least 40% of that new money is uh, spent in environmental justice communities, communities with the greatest need. That's correct. And to ensure that resources also track down to children and dealing with issues around poverty, issues around health care, issues around uh, uh, supporting families. These are real investments that I think have been just put off for too long. And we will, we will see a, a healthier, more resilient society. And I think it will make us a stronger nation as a whole. So these are national security items that we need to see as investments, just like the military. Okay. In our last couple of minutes, I know that in September, your Center for Environmental and Climate Justice at Texas Southern received a $4 million grant from the Jeff Bezos Earth Fund. So what do you hope to accomplish with with this new funding? Well, I think it's important that we get funding uh, to support our community university partnerships, our, our organizations on the ground, so that have historically been underfunded, and our universities at centers that have done a great deal of the work around environmental and climate justice that we also funded. And, and when we provide uh, resources, technical support to ensure that competitive applications are made at the city, county level, uh, and to ensure that resources flow to need, and to make sure that our uh, community-based organizations, and in, in our case, our HBCUs, historically black college and universities, and our community-based organizations partner up to, to assist and support those areas, those areas of priority. I think that's important, and that's uh, um, supporting those things that we have been doing over the last you know, several decades with very little money, in some cases no money, uh, but commitment. And I think with resources, we can do much more and be uh, much more effective uh, in getting results and solutions uh, quickly. We don't, I've been working on this for four, uh, four decades, but we don't have four decades. We may have you know, two decades and maybe one to get this right. And that's the urgency of now. Dr. Robert Bullard, who's widely known as the father of environmental justice, this subject is experiencing a moment right now. Let's uh, see what happens in, in this next week or two, and then we're off to COP26. Lots going on right now. Thank you for taking time uh, in this very busy time for, to talk to me today. And thanks for having me. Okay, let's dive right into our episode. I didn't know what to expect from the Toxics or a Drag panel put on by the New York nonprofit We Act. In fact, I wasn't 100% sure if this panel, featuring a public health expert and three drag performers, fit with our season's focus on systemic racism and environmental justice. And then I listened in. I speak around the country on these issues. And, you know, to my knowledge, this is really the first event that's centering and highlighting the voices of the LGBTQIA community and gender and sexual minorities. So um, just want to give the props to WE Act for always being on the forefront of these issues. That's Dr. Ami Zota. She's associate professor in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the George Washington University Milken School of Public Health. 
She's been working on the issue of safe cosmetics for years. For example, five years ago, she took part in a congressional briefing titled Scientific Concern Over Chemicals in Personal Care Products. Five years later, cosmetics still contain dangerous chemicals. Just because I know for some of you, you're new to this discussion. Um, this is a headline, you know, from two weeks ago. From the Associated Press, June 15th, 2021, study, half of U.S. cosmetics contain toxic chemicals. There was a new study out really showing how these PFAS chemicals that we've been hearing a lot about, they're the forever chemicals in our drinking water. Well, they're also really widespread in our cosmetics. So, you know, really just to kind of point out, this is a big widespread problem and um, it's in the news a lot. And, you know, that's why I think it's important to have this conversation. Beauty products contain multiple chemicals that can harm health. We'll follow along with an abbreviated radio version of Dr. Zoda's slideshow. Formaldehyde, um, you know, it's a human carcinogen. Phthalates, we'll talk about. Parabens, lead, you've probably heard of because of paint and gasoline. It's also in cosmetics. Mercury, uh, triclosan, as well as PFAS. So it's really a chemical soup that is in our cosmetics, in the, you know, and our personal care products, these, these products that we put um, in and around our bodies, in, in our homes, uh, on a daily basis. Sitting next to this list of chemical offenders in Dr. Zoda's slide is another list of negative health outcomes, like endocrine disruption, cancer, reproductive harm, disrupting the ability to get pregnant and deliver healthy children, cancer, asthma, and neurodevelopmental harm for children exposed early in life. But surely government protects us from these harms? Well, no. The law safeguarding the health and safety of personal care products is outdated and ineffective. If government were to help, where would that help come from? So FDA is the, you know, the federal agency that oversees uh, regulation of personal care products. And they lack the authority to review ingredients in these products to de determine whether they are safe. So you can't assume what you find in Target or CVS has gone through some, you know, high level scrutiny by the government because the laws aren't set up that way. In the United States, only 11 substances are banned or restricted from use in these products, um, whereas hundreds of chemical substances are banned or restricted in Europe and many more even in Canada. And as a result, U.S. companies, you know, that make personal care products, you know, they're largely regulating themselves and uh, companies really don't have to disclose all the ingredients in the product. So I just want to take you through a little bit of my research on one class of chemicals. That class is phthalates, a word that starts with a silent pH. They're in hundreds of everyday products. They do things like making plastics flexible rather than brittle. And among Dr. Zoda's concerns, they disrupt hormone systems. And they can interfere with reproduction for both women and men. And here's another idea that's mentioned in this presentation. For those in the trans community undergoing hormone therapy, beauty products can be profoundly destabilizing. Now, here's a slide titled Environmental Injustice of Beauty which begins with intersectional discrimination leading to racialized beauty practices and ending up with health inequities. Think products that relax black hair or lighten black skin. What are the influences around the products we use, 
what we define as beautiful, socially acceptable, right? Um, these are highly racialized, right? And they're, they're impacted by uh, systems of discrimination like racism and sexism and uh, heterosexism. And then finally, a slide that's the heart of her argument. And when we're done, I'll give you the link to this talk and slideshow. At the top, white supremacy, patriarchy, colonialism. Then the problems of sexism, racism, and classism, leading to policies and dress codes, targeted ads, cultural norms, peer pressure, internalized racism. And at the center of this slide and central to our discussion right now are beauty rituals that can turn dangerous or deadly. These norms are codified through our policies in the workplace, um, in schools that right, like don't allow certain type of hairstyles, um, targeted advertising that make people who are outside of the norm feel self-conscious, even cultural norms around family and friends, which can lead to internalized notions of beauty and impact our everyday beauty rituals. So, for example, Dr. Zota has studied what she calls black hair discrimination. And it's the proposition that black women who wear their hair a certain way may have fewer opportunities for professional and personal advancement. A product that straightens that hair, then, may be a toxic stew, but it also may be needed to earn money to feed a family. Now, the legendary leader of WE Act, Peggy Shepard, is on this Zoom mostly as a listener, but she chimes in midway with a couple of points. Don't mistake high cost for safety, she warns. Examine closely any claim that a beauty product is natural or organic. Those may simply be words. And ever the campaigner and educator, she has a question for the panel's drag performers. Knowing this information and maybe talking to your friends about it, does it really make you consider tomorrow changing your brand or considering a different product? So I just wanted to put that challenge out. I would say yes. That's Ja Love, who performs in drag as Ja Lisa. But the unfortunate side about a lot of these things is that um, we can read, we can, we can say, we can hear so much about products, but sometimes it is actually through personal experience whether how we navigate through um, shopping for products, right? So I have been doing my research and educating and changing, but it is a natural slow progression. <laughs> But yes, I am being very cognizant about what I'm using. I'm not saying I look at, I look at every labeling and this, that, the fourth, because I do like word of mouth. But for the most part, I've been changing my habits. Hi, Peggy. And that's King Ivy, who you can meet on Instagram as the King Ivy, followed by an underscore. She talks about the natural products that she uses. So like if I know I need something that's more brightening, I'm going to use something like turmeric. I'm going to use something like vitamin C, so like lemon peels or orange peels or anything like that, or like even the, like cut a piece of lemon, you know, get it on there. Um, I'm going to use, if I know I want to be more moisturized and more glowy, I'm going to, before I put my makeup on, I'm going to prep it with olive oil. I'm going to use coconut oil. I'm going to do what I have to do to get in and make sure I look as good as I can. Because I, I, I do realize like sometimes we don't always look at the labels of um, the makeup and the ingredients, you know, like I was, doing makeup for so long and I just recently found out that they use bugs for red lipstick like they use the blood of the bugs for red lipstick so like just hearing about that you know what I mean like every day we're always learning something new. 
My love, I had never heard that before. The third performer at the webinar was Roque. With makeup products, we're so used to like having word of mouth. So it's like, oh, we don't really go out of our way to try something new unless we know somebody else has done it. And we're like, oh yeah, it looks good on them. So we're going to try it on. So to me, yes, I want to find a product that like I could be like the girl to be like, yeah, go do this. Go wear this because it's good. But because there's like no products like that out there, none of us really have gone out of our way to like look for it. We've always just been like, oh, this is, looks flawless on you, darling. We're going to put this on my face now. It's never been, oh, there's this product. Let's just all go get it. So would you be happy with like a list of things you should think about or a website that says these are the things in this product and maybe you should avoid it? Would you kind of look at that kind of website? Personally, I would say yes. I would happily look into that. You've heard from Roque, Peggy Shepard, King Ivy, Ja Love, and Dr. Ami Zota in a webinar called Toxics are a Drag from the New York nonprofit We Act for Environmental Justice. The June 30th, 2021 panel was moderated by Taylor Morton. Find a link to the video with much more from our three featured drag performers in our show notes at norcalpublicmedia.org living. For our next webinar, we go to New Jersey, in the shadow of Newark Airport, just west of New York City. We are disproportionately polluted upon because of the zip code we reside in and the color of our skin. If you look at statistics for this area, you will see the number of children who suffer from asthma, who have to use respirators to breathe. I can't call it anything else but a sacrifice zone. A zone that's been deemed these lives don't matter as much. We don't have to regulate. We don't have to deny permits in this area. What makes us an environmental justice community is not simply the fact that we have pollution. It's the fact that we have this wide range of difficulties of social, economic, educational, and environmental challenges that make it almost impossible to grow up as a healthy adult here. It's the New Jersey connection and so much more that led the New Jersey-based Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Program to create an online event on environmental justice. The July 22, 2021 event included sharing a half-hour film titled The Sacrifice Zone, directed by Julie Winokur. She's the founding director of Talking Eyes, a company that creates media for social impact. The format of this online meeting, which drew hundreds of visitors, was simple. After an introduction, the film was played, and then a group of women, an activist, a researcher, two poets, reacted to the film, read a few related poems, and answered questions. After viewing the Sacrifice Zone film, Newark poet and multimedia artist Marina Carrera who describes herself as a queer, socialist, feminist, Luso-American, was moved to write the following poem. Some of her imagery echoes the look and feeling of Down Bottom Farms. That's a community garden that gives the Newark, ironbound neighborhood hope amid the reality of environmental injustice. 
We were born fighting for breath, each inhale a dice throw, no buffer between chemical and clean in this concrete dreamland we call home, where trees have swords for arms, where carnations crack the concrete. This sacrifice zone tracked by hot rolled steel, rivered by plastic and pollutants, while planes fly overhead, trailing out lead, taking people who don't live this way far from here, to islands birded by color, swept immaculate by sand, watered in ways we will never know, but still we grow. We create and we compost, we farm and we feed, we take and we give. We pray to Our Lady of Newark that Covanta not kill us before a morning coffee, before the corn and cabbage ripen down bottom under the hazy August sun. You heard a reference in Marina Carrera's poem to Covanta. That's the company that operates a trash-to-energy plant in Essex County that burns waste from 22 municipalities in the New York, New Jersey region and which has taken responsibility for turning the skies purple as it burned iodine from unknown sources. If you want Covanta's side of the story about their impact on Newark and surrounding areas, visit their website at covanta.com. Filmmaker Julie Winokur was inspired by this conversation to ask another participant in the webinar, Dr. Jalon White-Newsom, about resilience a word that frequently seems to ask people in our society to bounce back from oppression. Winokur quoted a group called Dignity and Power Now, which encourages a new definition of the overused word. Uh, The quote is, the purpose of resilience is not to build the capacity to endure more harm. We build resilience to be more skillful in confronting the systems that have harmed us. So I'd love for you to address that in terms of environmental justice and the systems that have harmed us and and what it is that we need to put our energy into to reverse that. Yeah, I mean, I think and I so uh, thank you for giving credit to the organization that that created that definition. And I think, Maria, I mean, in the conversation, but, you know, that we had before this hit it head on, like, why should our people have to be superhuman? Why are our systems failing us in a way where, you know, resilience is something that is praised? How much can I take? You know, when you talk about the cumulative impacts and all these multiple environmental stressors that are just too normal, uh, that that's just that's just incomparable. So I I think for me, you know, it's I, I often say that it's not the fact that the people aren't resilient, but it's the fact that the systems aren't resilient. The systems have been set up in a way, you know, to fail people. And, and it's quite obviously in so many different ways and all the crises that we face that, that that is the case. You know, when you talk about who's making the sacrifice, you know, the people are being sacrificed. But how do we turn that? What is the sacrifice that industry needs to make? What is the sacrifice that government needs to make to actually get us to a place where environmental justice can't exist? And so I really think until we begin to one, hold people accountable, there has to be some consequence to these actions. We're going to continue to have the same conversation 10 years from now. 
Dr. Jalan White Newsom is founder and CEO of Empowering a Green Environment and Economy, a strategic consulting firm. She spoke during a webinar put on by the Dodge Poetry Program. The online event shared a film by Julie Winokur titled "The Sacrifice Zone." Winokur introduced the second poet of the gathering, Camille Dungey. Camille, I feel like you you have been working now for a long time in um, you know elevating black voices in context with environment and nature, and so I would love for you to first of all read a poem that you've selected, um, and and talk to the importance of poetry in in closing some of this gap. I'd be happy to. I feel like one of the things. That we're hearing coming up in this conversation is it's it's about awareness,、uh, it's about knowledge, it's about knowing what's happening, it's knowing that nothing gets thrown away. There is no away. There is a place that is out of your sight, <laughs> but that that is in somebody else's backyard,、uh, and and just being really aware of that, and also being aware of of our history. As a nation, and how these communities have been developed and segregated, and and redlined and sidelined and built around, and why, right? Why it is that we can go from city to city to city and say this looks the same? That that so frequently the less economically privileged parts of towns are on the east side. Why is that? Because of the prevailing winds, the direction of the prevailing winds. If the factory is going to stink. We're gonna have the people on the east side get the stink of that factory and the contaminants of those factories and things like that. All across the country, really, all across the world, these things happen again and again, and they're inculcated into our systems and our communities, and becomes normalized. As I've seen in the chat, it becomes this is the way it always is. But that does not mean it has to be the way it always will be. In fact, it's young people who give poet Camille Dungey hope that all is not lost. Young people and the idea that arts may be a gateway drug for hope. One of the things that that art and literature、um, and poetry can do is create these bridges、uh, of engagement, so that you hear a poem that you you're interested in, that's telling a story that looks like you and represents you, and you realize that this is a way that you can articulate yourself and understand yourself and see yourself in the world. So I think that those are are all such important components of what poetry can do, and I, and also. So you know we do we teach literature, and so those are the lessons. This is how we build our imaginations about who we can be and who we are. And so if our literature also engages with justice, then we are creating an imagination that has a capacity to hold justice and understand what justice may look like. Right. So the poem that I selected to read is actually from my very first book, and、um, there's a there's a little tag in it that if you know about African American community history, you know that very frequently if you drive around towns、um, and you see a Dunbar school, that's where the black people used to live. Because there, there would have been a school named after Paul Lawrence Dunbar, a poet、um, who was a revered、um, member of the African American community. So the poem is, "The Preacher's Wife Speaks at the Dunbar High School Commencement." You are the crop that grows wild tall, that wicked brambled twists up 
around and over the lean poles grounding you. The plants that shoot and swing in their eager, budding, lanky ways, you sway up bright and juiceful. Sweet you, right worlds, globed and green. In such ways as I have seen and others I have not. Sometimes in words like rich soiled plots, you are the bountiful crops. The Preacher's Wife Speaks at the Dunbar High School Commencement, read by poet Camille Dungy. The poem ends up in the same place as Julie Winokur's film, with a hopeful scene of growing. For the Ironbound Community Corporation, Down Bottom Farms is a way not only to help neighbors access healthy food, but to build community. Hey, Matt. So excited you made it. I finally made it out. This is our farm. That's the farmer's market. So if you want to get your goods, they leave at 7. Hola. Yeah, they leave at 7. And then we'll... I would love for this to not be our job. I would actually love a future in which my job is irrelevant. But when I think about the concentration of pollution in this neighborhood and the children that are growing up in this, I don't have a choice. It's a hard job but I would have to sever my life completely and get rid of my humanity in order to give up. To not keep going would be to leave my community behind or to give up on them in a way that I don't feel my community's given up on me. Hey, you wanna help us? We've been listening to an excerpt from The Sacrifice Zone, directed by Julie Winokur, featuring community members and activists from the Ironbound section of Newark, especially Maria Lopez Nunez. Like Robert Bullard and Peggy Shepard, Lopez Nunez is a member of the WEJAC, the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. We heard poetry from Marina Carrera and Camille Dungy, and it all came together in a presentation from the Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Program. Find links to all these people, organizations, and issues in our show notes coming up from Santa Fe, New Mexico, Environmental Justice, the Zen Connection. What I find is that I now refer to eco-anxiety, climate grief, and solastalgia as three different kinds of emotional and psychological distress. We're hearing once again from Dekila Chungyalpa in her presentation for the Upaya Zen Center on Social and Environmental Justice. It took place in July 2021. She founded and leads the LOCA Initiative at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Here's their mission statement. Our mission is to support faith-led environmental and climate efforts locally and around the world, by helping build capacity of faith leaders and culture keepers of indigenous traditions, and by creating new opportunities for projects, partnerships, and public outreach.
We'll talk less right now about solastalgia, but look it up. It's often defined as the homesickness one feels when one is at home because of changes in the environment or climate. As for the other two conditions, and what we see, especially working with the students at UW Madison, is that young people, in particular, resonate with eco anxiety. It, you know, it's got all the symptoms that anxiety does—sort of the frenetic energy, right? The the desire to immediately move to action, anger. Uh, no patience, <laughs> you know, the resistance to waiting or thinking or contemplating, but wanting to act immediately. So we see this particularly among young people, not surprisingly. The climate grief seems to be, interestingly, with the older generation and also quite a bit with environmentalists. You know, everyone who identifies as an environmentalist is in a free fall of grief right now and has been for a long time. It's sort of like the Cassandra effect that you have been shouting this from the top of the roof for decades, right? And no one has been listening. And we've been saying, it's coming, it's coming, the flood is rising, it's rising, and no one is paying attention. And when the disaster comes, you know, that's when suddenly everyone wants you to speak or everyone wants to listen to environmentalists. But even then, it's to kind of... Uh, shove us through this funnel that works for everyone else. Chung Yalpa says there are two camps of environmentalists these days, the mitigation camp. You know, the camp where you really have to be cheerful and say technology will solve everything and kumbaya. And the adaptation camp. And then the camp that's like, wait, our most marginalized are in trouble. We are not so worried about mitigation because we have to work on adaptation because the crisis is here. And I think for us, the reality is how are we walking, holding these two things and finding balance between the two worlds. Tequila Changyalpa was joined at the Upaya Zen Center event by several other environmental thinkers and Zen practitioners, including Rhonda McGee, author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice, and Heather McTeer-Tony, a former mayor and former official with the EPA. Sensei Kriti Kanko addressed the group about climate grief, She's a climate scientist, educator, activist, grief ritual leader, and a Zen priest. As a senior scientist in the Global Climate Program at the Environmental Defense Fund, she helps implement climate-smart farming at scale in India. Climate anxiety or climate grief, that term itself is more applicable to folks, to people who haven't experienced existential threats before. Yeah? Communities that have experienced colonialism, slavery, genocide, dispossession, all of these things, they tend to view climate crisis as just another layer of threat, compounding these long-standing forms of oppression. This really shows up when I lead grief circles, right? A group of friends call me and say, let's, let's do a grief circle around climate crisis. I, in early on, I used to get so uh, shocked that how, how different people from different backgrounds, racial and class backgrounds, are, are expressing their grief or not. That sensitivity has taken time to take root in me, that people with privilege are seeing climate crisis an existential threat when people of color have felt this for decades, centuries, you know, historically. 
Of course, needless to say, climate crisis is slated to be the biggest threat for oppressed communities if we don't act radically. Heather McTeer Tony took up the discussion along the same lines. She was a regional administrator for the EPA and a two-term mayor of her native Greenville, Mississippi. She calls herself a recovering politician who has trained climate activists and officials in 15 countries. Indigenous populations on this planet and our globe make up 80% of the populations that are in direct connection with biodiverse ecosystems on our planet. What does that mean? It means 80% of the people who are in direct connection with different biodiverse um, systems, ecosystems, our oceans, our lands, our indigenous communities. And so if we have not uh, identified and understand the importance of equity and listening deeply and valuing indigenous communities that again are 80% of the people who are in direct connection, they're on the front lines, they are giving us the warnings of what's going to happen. But unfortunately, we have not trusted them enough to understand that there are red flags waving to say what's going to happen. And that comes once again from years of not valuing, of mistrusting, and not recognizing the importance of social justice when it comes to the connection to environment. So the people who live indigenously in the Amazon communities who are on the front lines and know exactly what it means when they see the shifts in their water quality, when they see the trees that are burning in their own communities and when their own health is impacted, that to us is a warning sign of what will come if we do not value and pay attention to what the people on the front lines are dealing with. It is a direct line and connection of value and trust. Just because they look differently, their experiences are different, or they have not been in the upper echelons of uh, capitalism and how we think about success, does not mean they do not have the wisdom, the creativity, and the ingenuity to help us understand the solutions that are necessary in order to see success when it comes to meeting this climate crisis. Heather McTeer-Tony speaking on environmental justice and indigenous communities during a webinar put together by the Upaya Zen Center. The speakers at this event had a connection to make that might not be obvious to everyone. It's a connection between the contemplative states of mind, such as meditation and mindfulness, and the hard work, the dirty secrets, the horrible unfairness of environmental injustice as it weighs on our society today. Nobody would suggest that these are problems we can breathe or meditate our way out of, and yet, listen to Rhonda McGee. Her book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, suggests we can begin to heal ourselves and our communities and perhaps our planet through mindfulness. So let's end our four-year project of living downstream with some deep breaths. So just maybe on the next in-breath, sensing into what is well within you. Huh, and I've already got one hand on my heart. Please join me if you feel that might be in any way of benefit. Just placing that warmth, that sense of body-to-body -body connection right here on our own hearts, maybe both hands on the heart or maybe the other hand just beneath the belly button. 
my students sometimes say this feels to them like you're giving ourselves a hug. So just if you're willing, and it's totally up to you, no judgment, breathing in and breathing out, feeling our soft bellies, our warm hearts. Mm. And as we breathe in and out, feeling the ground beneath us, ah, feeling the way that the caress of the breath across the nostrils down into the body as we breathe and exhale, allowing ourselves to just feel the gentle rising and falling of the diaphragm, the inner organs of the torso, just as we breathe. And in doing that, feeling the, the reality, this is not a concept that we are always already of and a part of this that we call the environment, <laughs> that we are tempted to think of as separate from ourselves. Always already a part of this. So I think I wanna begin with this poem uh, so in, we can continue in a sense meditating through this. This is a poem that I wrote for the beginning of the book that I published a couple of years ago. Um, it's called The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Strengthening Our and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. And so some of you have heard me speak about this and have heard this poem or maybe have done me the honor of reading it. But I'll offer it as a part of a a, a sort of a way of transitioning from this meditative moment of practice into our meditative reflections together. Seamless thread, it's all practice. I'm titling this, or I titled it, If the Path Could Speak. Beneath these words rests the awareness of generations and of generations and of the generations that have come before. The awareness that each one of us is a vital part of the earth that we call home, is of the wind, the rain, and yes, even the fire. And so we inherently belong. If the path could speak, it would say, we must assert that which already exists deep within us, namely a sense of kinship with all those, all those beings of all sorts, colors, shapes, heritages. We must assert that which already exists within us, namely a sense of kinship with all those with whom we share this earth. On repeat, in every language, unceasingly. On repeat, in every language, unceasingly. Seems like that's a prescription for bold action. 
So can we reverse the unfairness and evil of a system that devalues the lives of our neighbors by keeping them downstream from the toxic garbage society creates? Well, we have to try. On repeat, in every language, unceasingly. Thanks for listening. Today's episode of Living Downstream was reported and produced by me, Steve Mencher. I'm Living Downstream's founding producer. We featured music from Ben Miller. The Living Downstream theme music is by David Shulman. Special thanks to Upaya Zen Center, the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation and its poetry program, and We Act for Environmental Justice for sharing their webinars. Chris Lee is radio executive producer, and Darren Lachelle is the president and CEO of Northern California Public Media. Subscribe to Living Downstream on Apple Podcasts, comment on it and rate it there, and find it wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about us on NPR One, and a lot of you are finding us on Spotify. Thanks. Visit our website at norcalpublicmedia.org living. There, you can navigate to every episode we've produced since 2017. And if you follow the link to resources, many of the episodes have connections to more information and also to action you can take in your own community. Again, that's norcalpublicmedia.org living. Special thanks to everyone who's been involved with the podcast these past four years, especially the producers who I've had a chance to work with and learn from. If you want to tweet about us, use the hashtag livingdownstream. Comments, kudos, or brickbats? Email living at norcalpublicmedia.org. Living Downstream thanks our sponsors who make this podcast possible. A list is available at norcalpublicmedia.org. Thank you.